James. Damn good. How are you, dude? I'm good, thanks. How are you, mate? Well, I'm good too. It's been a little break because James had a busy couple of weeks at work, but we're back. Um, Cloud Streaks is a podcast where James and I talk about a different article or podcast or topic each week. We're going through the Wait But Why series, The Story of Us, and we're up to Chapter 3, The Story of Stories. Um, before we begin, I thought I'd say, James, what gets you more excited? Elon Musk launching a new Tesla or Tim Urban launching a new Wait But Why article? Oh, that's a tough one, Duncan. <laughs> um, well, so uh, I guess this obviously bears relevancy due to the recent announcement of the Cybertruck, mm. <laughs> and uh, all the excitement, or I guess all the hype that's around that. So for me personally, um, like at the moment, Wait But Why plays a much larger role in, uh, in in terms of having an impact in my life. So I'm just going to, like, short answer, say Tim Urban Wait But Why article. Yeah, totally. I think um, it's interesting, like, you might think, oh, Tesla's going to help move the world towards sustainable transport and sustainable energy. But wait, but why is going to move the world towards having a better, you know, interaction with each other? <laughs> um, and so for me, um, I don't own a Tesla. Um, and whilst I like looking at, you know, them in the videos, um, actually the impact on my life and perhaps climate change is, no, it is obviously very important. And uh, what Elon's doing is very important. But these web articles literally change how I think about the world and living. So I think for me personally, the tangibility of the wait, but why articles is much bigger. That's a very interesting point. Like I was thinking it purely from selfish reasons here, but you made it because <laughs> you're a selfish person. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my my uh, what is it? My instinctual mind is taken over. Uh, but you made mm. the point about how. Uh, so this like, is really good. James is lower order on the thinking mind, and Duncan's high order. This is from chapter two. I, so this I is a nice analogy. Making... This is really good for you and I. Wasn't making a point of reference <laughs> compared to your mind, Duncan, of where that's currently sitting. But uh, it's interesting how uh, so in this article that we are about to discuss, there is a mental model around how you can actually derive behavior. And so on one side, there's basically your motivation. And on the other side, there's environment. So Elon Musk is changing the environment. And Tim Urban Webber, why? is changing our uh, like our morals and our values based on upgrading our minds. So these two together, uh, you know, charging the way, leading the way forward in, in generating the best possible behavior, I guess. One of the ways to think about it is humans have been taking care of Benzo's hierarchy of needs, sort of starting at the bottom, going level up, level up. So it used to be that you know, there was lots of intertribal warfare and then people died from not enough food. Now they die from more people from too much food than not enough. And so we need to stop climate change. Um, and I think, you know, Elon's focusing on that um, and Tim Urban's focusing sort of on a higher part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, maybe esteem, you know, or because um, esteem is kind of partially your friendships and tribes and he's sort of at that as well as self-actualization. So to me, they're both very important things. Um, yeah, but they're sort of different parts of the stack from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm, uh, I, I do enjoy referring it to a stack now as if it's like a, it's an entirely integrated system and not just one layer on top of the other. So now we're getting a little bit more uh, contemporary in our referencing. So that's great. Okay, so the story maybe, of us. Maybe was... just one thing um, before we jump in there. Like Tim talks a lot about the emergent stacks um, and how you know individual atoms join together, etc. But we're able as humanity to do things that we weren't able to before for instance, make Teslas or write blogs about how we should, you know, structure a country because we've taken care of the lower parts of the stack. We have more words and other things. So to me, this is a really nice meta way of looking at it, 
they are there is an emergent stack that's possible because of what happened before and they're looking at different parts of the emergent stack mm. well yeah they can definitely see the woods for the trees a lot better than at least i can so mm. <laughs> i'm glad they're the ones who have uh, <laughs> tasked with this particular job mm. so looking at the uh, i guess it, it really helped to try and like first take the perspective of what where we how we got to where we are now and so in the beginning we we're talking about the two types of minds one which is the lower mind or the fire mind which runs on instinctive uh i guess factors and then there's the higher mind which is basically made up of reason empathy and imagination and then you couple that together with how humans or i guess living beings in general can be layered in this emergence tower as you mentioned earlier to operate at different levels of a collective system so at the individual level that's one part but then you can operate within a small group or within a larger community or within an entire city or country so that's the idea of this emergence and so you put those two things together you then start to appreciate the power of how stories can you know get i guess in a way be the fabric that it, uh keeps uh, that glues us together in such a way. Elon Musk was in a recent podcast um, with Lex Friedman called Artificial Intelligence, and he said that humans had a monkey brain with a computer on top. And I really liked that. Um, and so I think <laughs> the analogy here is that the monkey brain is your lower, sort of what Tim calls lower sort of uh, primeval or brain. And then your higher mind is the kind of computer on top. Um, mm. And there's a quote from the article, which Tim wrote, if an animal's life is a game of chasing good and feelings and avoiding bad ones, the animal's environment is the obstacle course standing in the way between it and all of those delicious chemical rewards. So one thing people say is that are we just a slave to our limbic system, which is the monkey brain, which is the lower, you know, or primeval mind, and all we really want are good feelings or bad feelings, and we don't care how we get them, and we just we actually think that we're the one driving this. Like I'm doing this, but all you really want is that that happy feeling to go off. And so your life is just being a slave to this without necessarily knowing that you are a slave to it. Yeah. So in terms of what actually drives our behavior, I, I would definitely agree that when you look at uh, most members of the animal kingdom, that seems to be exactly what, uh, I guess, uh, is the operating model. And Tim Urban uses, uh, you know, your pet dog, Moochie. And how you can actually derive behavior from uh, controlling either um, its primal motivation, which is, you know, treats, or its environment by way of an electric fence. And so an animal is, is, not, is no different. So an animal that does not behave uh, in terms of like always running away versus an animal who does behave is no different in terms of it, um, in terms of its behavior. It's just simply now able to discern what is the better outcome? Like, I get rewarded with a treat if I don't run away, or I get punished with an electric shock if I do run away. So one of the things that I think I didn't realize until, I don't know, maybe starting five years ago, was just how strong your biological programming was. And I thought that there was none, kind of. <laughs> but if you walk near a <laughs> cliff, you get vertigo. If you didn't, you walked off the cliff. If you haven't eaten in a while, you get hungry. If you haven't slept, you get tired. If you see someone you're attracted to, you get horny. This is biological wiring. So I think most people can recognize I'll go near a cliff and you have that like fear in you. Now you didn't choose to feel that. That's like a program going off. And I was like, holy crap, this is so incredibly strong. And so this, yeah, is just something that I was totally unaware of. And I think it's really important to try to see 
is my biology got some programming from 10,000 years ago, which mm. I can't see, which is meaning that I don't recognize it's a subconscious, you know, I'm having this feeling, but I'm not conscious that it's from the biological programming. It's subconsciously happening and it's driving my decision making. Mm, mm. So, um, so this is what actually Tim Urban makes the distinction very early on is that when we look at, uh, I guess, one of the powerful notions around protecting not just yourself, but your family, he talks that he talked to this point in that we we value the relationship with our family very highly, not just because of stories, but because uh, uh, to his contention that genes recognize themselves in very close um, family members because it's shared the, the same, I guess, passageway. So there's this kind of dualistic element of protecting like at least your progeny, but then there's your siblings and then there's your cousins because you share a very, very similar um you know, makeup of different genes, but then there's the idea of well, when we actually get to this larger community size, the incentive to protect everybody within that community, or in this case, a tribe, uh, becomes self-reinforcing. And it's on one side, the stronger the tribe, the more likely you are able to survive. But then there's the other part, which is the stronger the tribe, the more likely you are able to fend off other kinds of threats. Yeah. I think this biology, biological wiring around tribalism was something that I also didn't really realize properly until maybe a year ago. So if you get a tiger and you put it in the middle of Africa and it sees lions, the lions don't look after it, right? It's like an orphan tiger. But if it's an orphan lion, it's not like its mum and dad are like in that lion pride or, or that pack of lions. They're like, come over here, lion, we'll look after you. So... Tigers, I would say, are relatively close to like lions. It's not like it's like I don't know, an, a hippo or something, right? But <laughs> there's there's some biological wiring where it's like, yeah, you're one of us. Come here, we'll look after you. You're not one of us. We won't. And when you look at actually this in humans, they've done some studies on basketball coaches, so no, basketball referees, and basically, if they are white or black, they have a subconscious bias where they slightly bias the you know tribe that they're from. So. This was really important. Humans didn't used to be able to speak as much as we do now. We had far less words. And so they say dogs have 12 words. And so it was kind of like you're being attacked. Look around. Who's wearing the same color shirt as I am? You know? So, you know, if you're in sport, you can sort of see they're on your team or not. And then you just helped. And so this is this really strange thing, which you may not be conscious of. Due to surviving in biology, people that look like you if things were getting, you know, a bit hectic, you naturally went to try to support and side with. Not doing that means that you had to make decisions and then you were dead. The arrow hit you or whatever. So humans didn't used to be able to speak like they did now. They used to be more grunting or whatever. And there was communication just kind of like, they look like me, therefore I help them and therefore I'm better than it's just me by myself. Yeah, exactly. And so this, this inherent behavior that we still run on today, you know, tens of thousands of years later, isn't something, uh, you know, that can be attributable to any one individual and like, oh, this person, uh, you know, for want of a better word, is like is a racist bigot or not. It's something <laughs> that's actually very much deeply embedded in our, um, in our, in our, um, in our source code. And yeah, it's it great goes, looking at. yeah, it, it's, it's something that goes back because like we've been running on this for like, 
you know, over a hundred thousand years. Like I, 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 I was watching something the other day. The earliest skeletal, uh, uh, I guess, uh, samples that they found is a hundred of a human. Sorry, it's one hundred and seventy thousand years old. So if we can't be precise on just how old mankind is, like they have found one that's one hundred and seventy thousand years, so we can arguably say that operating on this um, this sense of you know us versus them. I'm in this tribe and you're in, outside of my circle, therefore you are a set that must be uh, eradicated, is something that has worked and proliferated for a very long time. And it's only uh, you know in the last 200 years, let's say, when we've been operating more in the age of enlightenment, that this kind of value system has been shifted. So it, it's, not, uh, it's very easy to see that this is something that we still all inherently think, even without us knowing it. Yeah, I love this source code analogy. I sort of call it your inbuilt biological programs. So I assumed that I had none. I just thought, you know, I am a free agent and I make all decisions and there's no biases or anything that I don't know about. A neutral lump of clay. Yeah, correct. I was like, you are fully in control, Duncan, and you make all decisions and nobody has ever been able to influence you without your full and constant knowledge of this being, you know, occurring. Um, mm. And so now the more I become aware of the biological programs, once you're aware of them, they go from subconscious to conscious. Then you can start to see, ah, okay, I see the biological program which is running, e.g. see person you're attracted to get horny. That doesn't mean that I, for instance, like them. It just is the biological program going off. Whereas before, I'd be like, ooh, I like them. I've got a crush on them or something. <laughs> um, or a dog sees food and the dog's like, okay, go eat. It's not like the dog's in love with the, the food. You know, it's just doing what, <laughs> what it's sort of said, you know, the biological program says to do. So one of my learnings is, okay, well, what biological programs do you have? Cool. Now that you're aware of them, can you observe them going off so you can, they're not conscious. First of all, do I know they exist? Hopefully some will do. Cool. And now I know they exist. Can I actually see them happening real time? And if I can, can I lean against it? So I know mm. that it says, biological program says do this. Like eat all the chocolate. I'm like, no, don't do that because then you're going to, you know, have a heart attack or something, right? Yeah. Um, and then I can try to lean against the biological program and be neutral. Yeah. So firstly, I do, I do love your conflation of, Food versus sex being on the same uh, level. <laughs> uh, it's just a biological program. This it, is the it, same to me. Well, they are both biological uh, in their, uh, I guess, in their origin. But in terms of the value you associate to both of them have different utilities. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a story that could be conflated. But you can also yeah. see it at the purely biological level. So you need to be able right. to differentiate what's my biology say to do versus what does the story say to do. We'll get into that in a second. Those, yeah, exactly. those aren't always the same thing, and I think you can delineate. Yeah, so let's get, let's let's go there. Let's go there now, at least because when you're talking about something like food, um, at least I haven't given this any thought. I don't know if there are many stories around the food that we eat other than just its um, ability to provide nutritional value. But there is a lot of stories around uh, people that you find attractive and how we associate our, our own behaviour in acting on that primal, uh, I guess, value. Yeah, so I think with, whether you know it or not, there's a story that is given to you by society about almost everything. So, for instance, the story around chocolate is eat too much of this, you'll get overweight and then you'll be unattractive and then you won't have friends and you'll also get you know some kind of health disorder. So 
you eat chocolate and you have this like guilty pleasure, or, you know, you, you kind of know you can't eat too much of it. Whereas the story around, for instance, having your horny program go off is a really positive reinforcing one. The best thing you can do in life is to find your romantic partner and life will be much better without them versus God, I'm thinking about chocolate again. I can't think about it. You know, your body's, your society says, think about that person all the time. Society says, don't think about chocolate all the time. Hmm. So I, 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 I want to like, I guess, understand more because I don't necessarily think that this idea of like, if I eat chocolate, I'll then become overweight. is necessarily a story. I think that's more a direct uh, continuity of associating, you know, something that's indulgent to it not being good for me physiologically. Now, I will grant you that we live in a society that does not inherently value overweight people as opposed to many um, uh, thousand years ago where in some tribes someone who was overweight would consider to be very um, you know, high up in the social hierarchy. But I think it does matter when it comes to your behavior because when I look at a piece of chocolate, I'm not thinking about how will other people view me when I eat this chocolate. I'm thinking is that with how, this will be, how this will impact my body and my health. Whereas opposed to the other kinds of um, mechanisms, and let's just use your example of seeing someone and getting horny, uh, there's a number of different value sets you can attribute it to that then directs your behavior. Mm. So this is the way I sort of think about it. There, different thoughts go off, right? Some are biology-led, e.g. Mm-hmm. C person makes you horny, therefore think, uh, I like that person, as an example. And others are thought-led. For instance get a good grade at school, we get an A versus a D, then, you know, you're happy. Then the biological program or release of dopamine, serotonin, et cetera, happens. So your mind and the stories that you're given can make you happy, but also the biological programs. So there's society's programs and their stories. And then there's the biological programs. And it's like, uh, go to cliff, get, you know, vertigo, et cetera, Mm. can originate the thoughts. And then they can both have feelings. So also the feeling leads to a thought or the thought leads to a feeling. It can be both ways. So this is really, really interesting. It's like, ah, well, you know, there wasn't schools, government schools until, or sort of, you know, public ones until the 1870s. You know, so so this whole idea of getting an A, this is not somehow what humans were doing 50,000 years ago. Mm. But if you do well on, you know, your exams, you're happy. Or if you, you know, your football team wins the, the grand final, you're happy. There wasn't a football team, you know, 500 years ago. <laughs> so this is, again, a story. No one sat there and given you a piece of chocolate so you feel happy or given you a massage or something. You have had happiness go off because of a story that you're given. It's like, what? It's like, so I can give myself happiness through a story. I don't have to eat or, or, or something. It's just like I've decided that this is good and I therefore feel happy. Mm. So I, I, would, um, I would probably try and look at it a different way then because, yes, uh, schools have only been around very recently. It hasn't had enough time to, you know, uh, uh, append itself to any kind of like, I guess, deep value-based system. But what is the actual, what is the story that you're telling yourself anchored to? I would argue that you know, getting A's on a on a report card would directly link to your level of competence. And whether it's today in the modern world or um, back in ancient tribal um, times your competence within a community uh, would probably be highly correlated to your social standing in that community and therefore everything that comes with it. Like if you're viewed as the, as the best hunter, then you're probably a lot higher up in the social um, hierarchy and dominance layer than someone who's 
not uh, so capable. So I think it's the same value system that we're operating on. It's just a different environmental circumstance that we apply that through. So mm. my contention, I think, is that it's possible that everything has some kind of primal motivation behind it. Um, but then there's the lens of, well, what, how do we act on that in a modern world versus a uh, an ancient or um, tribal world? So I would say that there is some story um, behind either a biological story, aka programming in you, or a story that you have either taken from society you have made yourself. Hmm. Um, but if you take like Nietzsche, he thinks 99.9% .9 of people don't make their own stories. They take them. If you take yeah, many different yeah. people. Um, and so for me, just on that sort of people one, like basically the most athletic people were the best at hunting and, you know, et cetera. And they were the best genes. So if someone has like a giant tumor on their whatever shoulder, you, you don't, you look at that and you're just repulsed. Like you are biologically repulsed. And so it's not that, you know, you sort of chose this. This is what's biologically in there. But then the other one, which is also biology in there, is like power. Power is the biggest, um, you know, uh, most seductive thing. I've forgotten the right word or there's a saying. And if people don't have it, they manufacture it. So they have S&M, you know, as this thing where they subjugate themselves by choice or whatever else it is. So power is, you know, you were head of the tribe or, or whatever else it is, or you were the best fighter, you know. Um, and so these were therefore meaning that you had a higher chance that your offspring would be successful um so those are sort of the two underlying stories which are the same in the past now it's kind of like power is like i don't know you're a politician or you're very wealthy um mm. as opposed to like i don't know the best hunter in today is is well, how much money can you earn <laughs> so perhaps it's less <laughs> physically you know associated than it was and that's where the olympics came from can you throw a spear far like can you jump far can you run fast because it was a measure of how you were as a as a fighter mm, mm. so i think it really helps to try and break this down like and uh, like i guess create further clarity around this distinction of stories and, um, I guess, primal uh, triggers that, you know, we have activated in certain uh, circumstances. Uh, so the model that Tim Urban uses is this idea of, well, you have motivation and you have environments, and those two together dictate your behavior. But for a human being, what constitutes your motivation is made up of your primal motivation, which are those, uh, I guess, those instinctive triggers such as hunger, fear, horniness, etc. But then there are your values and your morals. And so the values and, and possibly even your morals as well, I think are what can be largely manipulated or driven by the stories that you have subconsciously or unconsciously been indoctrinated into from a very early stage, regardless of what your primal motivations may be. Yeah, I think this is key. Um, so um, if you look at a lot of the philosophers, they would say that people don't realize that they are indoctrinated. Um, they think that this is their own value. So Nietzsche would call these people camels. Camels do what they're told to do, feel how they're told to feel and don't complain. Right? They don't even know that they're doing what they're told to do or that they're feeling how they were told to feel. So I, I would say, basically, you know, if you didn't want to, if you wanted to have the most humans, well, you needed to therefore have that as priority one. So priority one is if you don't find a partner, your life will be crap. And the best thing you can do is find the best partner. And if it's not working, it's the wrong person. And then the most rewarding thing you can do is to have children. And if that wasn't priority one, you made less children. So all the successful societies had this. Now, I'm not saying this is not good. It can be incredibly rewarding and valuable. But 
this wasn't necessarily something you chose. So most people spend a lot of their life trying to find a partner. Like, you know, that's the reason they do well at school. That's the reason that they, whatever, have friends. And they think that this is their value, but they haven't necessarily chosen it. It's society's indoctrination. Um, and this is really interesting. Um, mm. So, th- yeah, a lot of these stories. And so I think effectively you're born and you, you are asleep and then you can, you know, I think you can live a good life anyway. There's no one way. But a lot of people don't know that they didn't choose this stuff. Mm. Mm. Well, that's exactly, you know, true. Like, I mean, <laughs> ignorant is bliss. So, and there's no telling just how many things you and I are ignorant of, even at this yeah, moment where we're trying to um, consciously explore all the things that, um, you know, we're not consciously aware of. But I would say there's two things to that. Number um, and I, I guess I can only make one point um, at a time here, but the first one is that there's still very much a utility around having stories. And the main, I guess, reason I'll put forward for that is, is, you know, we're around for an, an incredibly finite amount of time, like notwithstanding Duncan's argument that we're going to live forever. Uh, there's just not enough time for us to make sense of everything in, in the world. Uh, and by the world, I mean uh, life, reality, and the experience of being. And so stories are very helpful in us subjugating that process because our brains are inherently lazy. They like to hold on to things that require the least amount of RAM possible to process. And so stories have that utility because they manifest themselves and they persevere because they represent a rewarding behavior. You know, like, you know, if a story was that you must uh, throw all uh, kids down a volcano, then you're not going to reproduce and you're not going to um, survive. And so if a story does maintain itself, then it does lend credence to it being a valuable story. I would say it's valuable in that it optimized the most number of humans. That doesn't mean that it's got true value. So the stories that won were the most humans. Mm. So natural selection does not care about your feelings. And so there might have been a better way to live, but it doesn't. if they didn't have children, they're not around. So value, this is only determined by the number of humans, not as in it's rewarding. But this is the sort of thing, like I think you could say that children are 100% sacrifice, but they're 100% worth it, right? But only if you have the right story. Um, so a lot of parents, you know, I, I think we'll say, you know, I don't, you know, James will say whatever he wants, but like, you know, this is the first time I've cared about something more than myself. And this is a beautiful feeling. And then it's kind of like, what, what if you, you're not living if you care about yourself more than, you, you don't care about something more than yourself. But if you were to like, to back, like, what do you want to do? Not sleep, you know, have less money and, you know, um, look after something the whole time. That sounds horrible. Or have it having a kid. Actually, that sounds like the best single life experience. And to me, it's all about the story. It could mm. be the best life experience. It could be the worst life experience. It's up to you to decide, you know, and that's really interesting. It's like, no, it's not about, well, is it a good kid or do I have a good partner? How do you choose to process these things? Is mm. sacrificing and looking after your kid really, really rewarding? And so it's worth it, you know, or is it like, fuck that, I want to be sleeping in, you know, and so I, that you get to choose. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So exactly right. I think that's, um, you know, that is kind of like the distinction here between what is the utility of a good story? Because up until just recently, as you would um, argue, at, at least at the point I took from it, is a good story is one that ensures survival and proliferation of the humans as a species. 
Whereas now where survival is not necessarily our um, primal concern as, a, um, as per the hierarchy of needs, we could say it's now well-being. And so do these stories that, you know, whether we inherently or consciously uh, abide by, are they there to enhance an old world view of maximizing survival or are they there to optimize for a new I guess, state of being, which is to maximize well-being instead. So I think that there was, you know, much more uniformity around the story. But basically, as humans have become more educated, so the Enlightenment really kicked off when the Gutenberg Press occurred because books got way cheaper. There was already knowledge, but it just couldn't be spread far because mm. it was very expensive. Then we had the Industrial Revolution and we had enough spare capacity to be able to have people go to school and the government to pay for it. So when you, before that, only rich people went to school, like sort of less than 10% of people, and then got to the point where it's free education for everyone in a developed country. And so then people were able to learn more and then make more of their own decisions. So if you look at like, I don't know, the wealthiest countries, the percentage of people not having children is kind of the highest. And if you go to the poorest countries, the percentage of people not having children is the lowest. So there's kind of the only story that there was, whatever, 5,000 years ago was, must have children, <laughs> lots of children, right? And I'm not saying it's not a good story. But you really didn't choose. And so now, as people are learning more, they're living longer and they're more educated, they're able to make more of their own decisions. Mm. And so to me, this is really interesting. The story is as rewarding as you want it to be, as you allow it to be. You have the story work for you. You don't work for it. And so I, Duncan, had zero cons understanding of the fact that I could make my own stories or I could change my interpretation of the story until kind of five years ago. Well, actually, the first story I got rid of was the work story. The best job was the highest paying job. Um, and then I slowly made my own stories in different parts of life. But I basically, for until I was 20, had made none of my own stories. I was just living the stories that society gave me. Mm. So I guess a really helpful way of also understanding this, this, this part of like, what are these stories and what are their utility is what he talks about imagined realities. So it's what we all believe but it's not like they're necessarily true or what Brett Weinstein calls a metaphorical truth. So there are stories or beliefs that are not literally true, but by believing them, that enhances our chances of survival. And so this is where I think there's a lot of the kind of, you know, things in place and, um, you know, things around religion being the most obvious example. But I think in a modern lens, things around what we choose to believe from a work perspective, from a social perspective, fit in this bucket as well. Because like, to your point, Duncan, is what you choose, or you can change your own story. So if you believe that going to work and going to the highest paying job is what will make you happy, then that's the system that you choose to operate on. But it's whether or not it actually plays itself out in that way, um, does it actually have any kind of legs? Hmm. So there was an example that he used, which was um, about sort of monogamy, celibacy, and polygamy, um, which I thought was useful. So the biological program, which is, you know, see someone that you're attracted to get horny, then you're given a story from the sociocultural program or sociocultural indoctrination. Hmm. Monogamy, you know, so if that's your partner, then you love them. If you've got monogamy and the person that you are getting horny about isn't your partner, then you don't necessarily love your partner. Maybe you should break up. But this isn't something you chose. You weren't given. You you didn't make the monogamy story. You were given it, but you don't question it. 
then the celibacy, sto celibacy stories, for instance, if you're a nun, if you saw someone you're attracted to and you had the horny program go off, then you had an impure thought and then you think that you're a bad person. But you didn't choose the celibacy story. And then the polyamory one is like, you know, you see someone, you should always have sex with them. <laughs> um, and so I thought this was really interesting. You know, to me, I, I sort of hope to get to a point where see the biological program of times no story. It doesn't mean that I love someone. It doesn't mean I don't love someone. It doesn't mean I've had an unpure thought. It doesn't mean I should have sex with them. It's just my body saying, you know, doing the program that it was, it was, you know, built into its source code, you know, mm. thousands and thousands of years ago. Mm. So I, I, I think this is a helpful model for us to try and like, uh, leverage in terms of understanding what role a story plays in this because I, I definitely get your point around like well if I have a certain feeling and then label, like, label on top of that layer on top of that um, my value system which could be monogamy, celibacy or polygam uh, polyamory then yes that will elicit a different kind of behaviour but there are two things to this one is while you, I think there is a very big difference between choosing a story and creating a story so you might be brought up in a household or a community that highly values mon monogamy, but you can choose to be polyamorous if you so desire. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other um, aspect <laughs> of having no story. I don't. I, I think in order for you to have a behaviour, there has to be a story. Um, and so you might be able to create your own one there. And so it could be like, well, if I see someone and I get physically attracted to them, but I don't act on that, it's not that because you have no story. It could be that your story is that I value independence more than a potential relationship that I would get from this person if I acted on that. I'd say no story to me is that you can just see the program as a program. Mm -hmm. Whereas I but, used to, in the past, subconsciously conflate getting horny with the monogamy program that I was given, and therefore... I think I might like that person. Uh, maybe yeah. I. Yeah. So to me, the no story one is that it doesn't. When that biological program goes off, I don't need to join it to anything. I can just be like, oh, I'm hungry. You know, it's like I, I should eat some food or I'm tired. I should I should go to sleep. It doesn't mean that anything more than the program has gone off. Mm. Whereas well, before, I didn't know that there was a difference. I didn't know you could dissociate the two. Yeah. So I think you can. Well, I mean, I think you can distinguish between observing the biological behavior and applying the value or the story behind your behavior. So what I mean by that is that, like, for myself, in, um, for by example, I am very much in a very happy monog monogamous relationship. <laughs> monogamous. Monogamous. <laughs> this shush. Um, but I can, I can observe my biological behaviors and then ch willingly choose based on the value systems that I have. You don't need to have no value system in order to be able to observe your biological behavior in the first place. So I would say that you do have possess this ability where well, you can observe a, a, a biological trigger, but you can also then choose to apply whatever value system you want on top of that. I think it's a really good point. I think the, the thing that I was sort of saying is slightly different. I think I used to, 20-year-old Duncan, have the Get Horny program go off, and then it was always joined with the You Like That Person program. <laughs> um, it was So there, there was no ability to dissociate. And I think you might, James, decide, okay, I like you know being married, I like having kids, but I can also see the biological Get Horny program going off when you see somebody else. That doesn't mean you don't, for instance, love your wife. You know, it just means program going off. 
So I'm not at all saying that a story around monogamy isn't a good one or a way to a good life, each person to their own. Yeah. I'm just saying that I did not know that the two could separate. Yeah. So I, for me, as, as a 20-year-old, it was, yeah, there was no option for no story. Yeah, I, 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 t- I totally agree. Um, and I wasn't getting that point from you. What I was getting was that the contention I heard you stating was that in order for you to be able to observe your biological uh, wiring and be free from it was to have no story. That was how I read your point. And what I'm, I guess, trying to make a distinction on is that you can observe your biological wirings, separate yourself from that, but still have a story that you are also aware of, that mm. you also understand based on the values that under, underlie that, that story. So you can choose both. You can choose to observe your, um, your instinctive nature and your instinctual behaviors, and you can choose how you want to act on that. But I would contend that how you act on that has to be based on a foundational value that you hold. Maybe. So I think that most people are unaware that there is a, whatever, vertigo program or, a, a, you know, a horny program. Mm. And they're also unaware that they have been given the monogamy program by society. They didn't choose it. Mm. So you can be aware of your biological wiring, and I think most people aren't. And then you can also choose to take on a story that is an existing one, for instance, monogamy. Or you can make your own story, but the vast majority of people aren't aware that they have chosen the monogamy story. They just mm. think anyone who isn't doing that is some sexual deviant, as an example. And the only reason they're not wanting that is because they want to have lots of sexual partners, as an example. And so, to me, I think you know a good way to live a life is to have your own values and to live by them, but to also realize your values need to update. Um, and it's not just I have no story. You know, I, I just wander around and I, I'm a nihilist or something. And so, <laughs> I, I think it's really important that the distinction I think I'm making is that most people don't actively choose the monogamy story but some people do. Mm. Yeah, no, completely agree with that point. I think um, yourself and I, myself included, we're very much a part of that pack, um, you know, up until, you know, relatively uh, recently. And it's about becoming aware of that distinctive um, semblance between what do we have as a biological trigger and what do we have as a inherited value. And I think it can sometimes be hard to distinguish between the two, as you pointed out before, you know, the difference between, um, you know, seeing chocolate and wanting to eat it, but deciding not to, I would contend is different to seeing someone getting horny and then wanting to procreate with them. Um, and I don't think I can make a good enough argument as to why that is, but it's, it's really, it's really, really hard um, to, I guess, appreciate the role a story plays based on whether it is a biological um, trigger or whether it is something that has propagated itself because it has led to the maximization of the survival of our species. Yeah. Um, well, this is really interesting. So one of the things that, you know, they say is you can observe your consciousness and sort of one of the sort of secular ways of saying for this is mindfulness. Mm. So you're aware of what's going on. And one of the things they say you can do is you can observe without responding. So you can, for instance, observe, oh, the horny program's going off. Oh, I can see that I had 25 years of the best thing you can do in life is to find your partner. And if you don't, you won't be happy. And that finding that person will make you happy. And if you're not happy when you're with someone, it's because they're the wrong person, not because this idea doesn't work for you. And so then you have 
okay, well, the, the point program off. And now you can see the story program of monogamy. It's a trying to run. It's like, hey, hey, you know, I think we might like them. You're like, all right, I've got to lean against this story. You know, they, they, they drilled this on me. It was like built into me for 25 years. And then I've been slowly trying to figure out what I think works for me. And I've got to make sure that I'm sort of observing these things going off and then choosing how I want to respond. Mm. You don't have to at all. Mm. Um, but before I had zero consciousness of the biological stuff and of the socio-cultural stuff. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier is that there's this trade-off between uh, indoctrinating yourself into a story because of its uh, proclivity to maximize survival versus going your own way and basing your own values on what you decide. Um, and I guess th the best example I can give is, like, like, well, let's just use the monogamous story, um, which arguably is based on the very primal uh, ordinance of a, a male who stays with his primary partner when she has reproduced is far more likely to ensure the survival of his progeny. And I and I think that kind of lends itself out into future communities and stages around religion um, to reinforce this fact because it was self-reinforcing. It did, um, I guess, lead to stronger family units and more likelihoods of survival. As opposed yeah. to someone who chooses not to be monogamous because they don't want to be, they want to be polyamorous or they just don't want to commit to anything, but they still want to act on their primal behaviours. And that can lead to potentially a lot of instability. So, um, you know, Dr. Jordan Peterson would contend that a polyamorous community is quite destructive because what it means is that you have a lot of, um, uh, you know, unjointed families, uh, unsupported mothers, and then you have a lot of males running around and, um, you know, suddenly descending back into the power game because they want to suddenly assert themselves at the top of the dominant hierarchy. So if, do you choose a story that has worked in the past or do you take a risk and decide on um, making up your own story? I would argue that, that your choice of words actually shows your bias a little bit there. Choose, take a risk. To me, whether you like it or not, you are living a story, right? Mm. And the mm -hmm. existing one is maybe not right. So to mm -hmm. me, the much bigger risk is not questioning it and not trying to see what works for you. Some mm -hmm. doors are two-way doors. Some doors are one-way doors. So if you go through a door, sometimes you can't get back through. Other doors you can sort of go through. I think a lot of people don't even know they should consider other ones. And then when they do, the story around polyamory is you're a sexual deviant. And, and this is just some ruse for you to try to get laid more as opposed to a, a proper life choice. So to me, it's the exact opposite. Not questioning the stories and not trying to see that you could live another one is risky. Now, some of the other stories, like, I don't know, if, if there's a comet coming past and you have to have your Nikes on and then you drink this thing and you go onto the comet because you're part of a cult, that sounds like a one-way door sort of thing. <laughs> so you need to be careful that, <laughs> that this is not great. But for me, the bigger risk is assuming that you know what is right for you and you're mm. not being willing to be flexible. And so for me, I kind of assume I'm wrong and I assume that I should be updating my beliefs you know, not that I have no beliefs, but not that I have rigid beliefs. Mm. And this updating, so, you know, homosexuality was illegal in the 50s. Now we have same-sex marriage. We used to hang people for 200 reasons. Now most countries have no capital punishment of any kind. So if you look at history, it's totally changed on so many fronts. So I assume that even if I could understand what was optimal for Duncan today, it won't be right for Duncan in five years. 
And so to me, my sort of meta story is life is a journey. There is no optimal story and that I should stick to this and that I should be trying to understand and test where things work and where they don't. Hmm. Hmm. So first of all, um, pointing out the fact that I'm biased. Well, I am human, so haha. <laughs> um, but I okay. So I think that really, really helped me understand. Um, I guess your point, your your perspective on this, and I and I find myself agreeing with it completely. So this idea that <laughs> that makes well, me very bright, James. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. Go on. According to, according to Duncan, yeah, uh, <laughs> I could make me very dumb according yeah, yeah, to someone yeah. else. Of course. Um, but this idea is not to discover your inherited values so that you can abandon them, but it's to discover them just so that you can become aware of them to then question them. And the answer might be, yeah, it makes sense and I am on board with it because of X, Y, Z. But it's also giving the same and equal opportunity to say, well, hold on, does this still make sense in my world or in today's world? And is there something better? And that is that point of like, well, we can't adhere ourselves to maniacal dogmatic um, behavior because then that doesn't give us the opportunity to grow. But at the same time, it doesn't lend any credence to going to the other end of the spectrum where we just have moral relativism and nihilism and abandon everything that we um, have already built up. So it's this sweet spot in the middle where you are aware of what uh, structure exists around these stories and not necessarily... Um, discount them, but just simply question them. And what the answer you get back could be either or. Would that hmm. be right? Yeah, so I think pluralism, um, which is basically that you allow multiple beliefs to you know, ha- you know, coexist peacefully. Um, so it's not that the old doctrine was um, monogamy, and now the new doctrine is no monogamy, you know, whatever else it is. Now everyone has to shift. So for me... I hope that I am trying to help people build their own values and live by them, not to say, well, you have to live by Duncan's values. So in the past, I think there was a lot of like, you do this way if you're part of religion, as an example, or you get excommunicated, i.e. kicked out of the whole group. And if you can't speak to anyone back in the day, you're dead, effectively. <laughs> so excommunication is tantamount to being killed. So the story was self-sustaining to the point of this. So for me, I think that modern, you know, you know the sort of, societies they are becoming more and more plural uh pluralistic there are certain mm. things like i don't know you can't go around killing other people because therefore you know you, you you know almost allowing anyone to do almost everything allows people to do anything so for me there are certain things we have to agree on um but i also think that the vast majority of things we don't and you should be comfortable that i think james has i what i think is a wonderful life but that doesn't mean that's what i should do and mm. it doesn't mean that i should tell him that what i'm doing is what he should do mm. So here's the question. Uh, isn't Duncan's value, you should find your own value? Therefore, are you not <laughs> compelling people to adhere to your value? Well, the value, um, yeah, so it partially is, but it, it's allowing pluralism. So it's, it's sort of like the second derivative, right? So yeah. you are attempting to have people become who they want to become and fostering the, the circumstances that allow this, mm. not saying that there is an answer and you must do this. Mm. So to me... It might sort of seem similar, but I think if you dig at least one layer deeper, the outcome is totally different. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I guess when you look at that, uh, that semblance of when you go from somebody who is you know, operating on um, you know, their software without any aware- awareness of 
you know, what has, what code has actually gone into that software mm. versus someone who becomes more self-authoring, I think, is that shift between uh, having an awareness around what your value systems are and why you believe in them versus someone who is able to be, uh, I guess, controlled based on whatever delusional um, story has been propagated in order to, I guess, uh, uh, manipulate their values and their moral systems. So, mm-hmm. if, yeah, so it's good that you want to bring people into this way of thinking. Um, it's still, it's, for me, it's, it's still a very hard question of whether that in itself is a, a moral value that you want to impose onto other people, but it's also something that I would still advocate for. <laughs> I think you're sort of taking a narrow definition of moral value and imposition. So some things look to hopefully allow more, like they're looking to help people be able to become what they want. And other things are trying to force them to become something. So I think that, I don't know, you can have laws that constrict people or you can have laws that allow much more to happen. So for instance, that you have to, I don't know, it's illegal to kill people. It means that so much more stuff could happen. So people are stopped from doing one thing in one area. But the actual second order outcome of what it allows is way bigger than what it stops. So it's, it's sort of interesting. They're both laws, but some laws are really, you know, impinging on different people. Like, I don't know, if you were living in Sharia law, you know, in a caliphate, there's a lot of things you can't do, you know. And I would say that, I don't know, the law system or that we have, I don't know, in Australia versus 50 years ago allows more possibilities than it did. That's, you can see there are more jobs now, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really interesting that you need to sort of careful that laws stop things. Yes, but they allow other things to happen, ideally much more to happen than what they stop. And so, for instance, what I'm trying to do is to, I think, self-author my earnings, but also help others self-author. I'm not trying to tell them that they have to take my story. Hmm. Yeah, so like there, there was a number of, uh, I guess, elements there that you mentioned that will play a much larger role in the future uh, series of this uh of this blog series that Tim Urban's written um, around how laws actually, you know, not just um, inhibit, but they allow um, more liberty in in, in that regard. Um, but I, I I can now I guess separate between you know what is a moral value or what is a value based system, and what is the the I guess the architecture in which somebody operates their value system. So your value system can be, well, I believe in a monogamous or a polyamorous uh, uh, way of having relationships, but your architecture can be, well, this is something that I you know, inherited and subconsciously or unconsciously um, adhere to versus this is something that I have addressed or I've observed in myself, tried to discover where it originally came from try to understand how it potentially serves or does not serve me and then made a decision based on that. Yeah, the third part from you is, and then are you allowing others to make their own decision about what they should do or do you believe Mm. that they have to have a certain decision? Yeah. So most people don't make a conscious decision, then some do, and then some say, well, the conscious decision I've made is also what you have to do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think that there are certain areas where we don't want to allow anyone to do everything. E.g., I think you know, killing people should not be allowed. Um, but there are other areas, like whether someone should be monogamous or you know, celibate or polygamy, where I'm like, look, as long as you're not forcing others to do what you're doing, and you know, I- I'm cool with it. Um, mm. 
So, yeah, I think one thing I thought I'd worth touching on really quickly was just the power of stories. And I think you might be, oh, how powerful are they? It's like when you were born, you were told that there was a Santa and that you believe this. And Santa went down and somehow delivered, you know, presents to every person on earth and went down the chimney, even though he's much bigger than the chimney. And you may not have had a chimney at your house as well. And somehow this story, which was riddled with holes, you're like, yep, totally, buy it. Um, and so if everybody around you says something is true, then you better or worse can believe it. So for instance, the religion story, like there is a God, there is a heaven, there is a hell. And everyone said this, and the story was self-reinforcing. It was, well, if you don't believe it, you get kicked out of society, and that is tantamount to dying because you cannot, you know, work with people to being a little village or whatever else it is. Or well, worse, go was, to hell. Yeah, they were so powerful. So if you look at like, I don't know, Europe, Asia, etc., everyone was part of one of these stories. It was, you know, Christianity, Islam, or, you know, Buddhism or whatever. Um, and so there was no people that weren't part of a story. Like, they were all, it's just which story? It, it ate up everyone. And then the stories battled with each other. You had the caliphate and, you know, and the holy war and you had the crusades, etc. And so, basically, humans are collaborating together. Um, so, it's like the bigger you get, the more powerful the story needs to collaborate. And so, the more powerful the story is like, well, it's not just that you get to you know, get more food at the end of the day. At the end of your life, it's not like Christmas, you get more toys or less toys. The Christmas at the end of your life is the best thing ever, heaven, like literally the best of the best for everything for the rest of your life or the worst of the worst for the rest of your life. And so it was like setting up this reward system <laughs> and then everyone was told that it was true. And so mm. to me, you know, humans were able to sort of break out of this when they had um, enough, you know, uh, you know, time to have education, etc., and access to information. So it's like, well, how powerful are stories? And it's like, Religion. Every human on earth was part of one of them. <laughs> you know, it's just which one? <laughs> um, mm. And they battled with each other. And, you know, and there's a little mini example. Yeah, I believe there was Santa. And I remember finding out and I was not happy <laughs> that Santa was not around. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, um, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was just worth saying. Story's powerful. Yeah, no, like, um, very, you know, very good uh, thing for us to address. So, like, what gets pointed out in this particular vlog is so. There are four ingredients to a very powerful and um, prosperous story. The first one is tribal values. There needs to be a queen bee. You need to be able to have identity attached to the story. And then the last one, you need to have a cudgel. And so this is why the story of Santa Claus was so powerful because it ticks all of these four boxes. Um, like I, For me, I likened it to like a children's story version of God because it's kind of like imposing the exact same behavior system on somebody's own uh, particular value. You know, as a child, what do you value? Toys. What's your behavior? You know, you know, if you are good, if you're a good little boy or girl, then Santa will give you a toy because Santa can see you all the time. Um, and so it's this deceptive kind of manipulation that makes stories so powerful because it's coupled with this unfalsifiability. You can't really prove Santa's not real. Um, it plays directly to your incentive because you want toys. Uh, it has this notion of a queen bee because Santa is kind of like this godlike figure who is omniscient at the very least. And it also has tribal values. You know, we want you to behave in a way that is subservient to the rest of your community. And um, to your point, Duncan, like I, I can personally myself remember finding out I wasn't so disappointed. That was kind of like a slow burn for me. I kind of like slowly figured out over time. Um, but it's definitely something that I can see as not being uh, 
productive in instilling into children because I think it is deceptive. Um, and yeah, so I think to that point, like it's a very, very powerful way of controlling people by having these kinds of stories that play out those four different ingredients. Yeah, so just, uh, James, we're probably about four minutes I have to go, so I'll try about one point sort of more quickly. Um, there was no story, like there was no religion, right? And humans had less and less language. And so the best way to was this, like, they look like me, <laughs> and I've seen their face around before. So that was the 150 people Dunbar's number. And so that was the biggest group you could operate in. But if you could operate in a group of 1,500 people, then the 150 people were going down. And so they need to make a sort of operating system where people can collaborate together and they can know, well, you're part of my tribe, you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or whatever else it is, right? Mm -hmm. And then they had a better moral operating system, the Ten Commandments, and then they had, you know, if you did this wrong, you're out for this reasons. And so there were kind of like laws and there were judges and there were, you know, courts. And so, you know, jail was getting kicked out of society. And then we slowly have had more and more nuanced, okay, well, the actual laws need to update. And it's not just something that was written down you know, in a book, you know, whatever, 2000 years ago, that somehow is not going to be able to be changed. Um, and, you know, I don't know, whatever. So same sex marriage is an example, or these things. And so it was a better operating system than nothing. But we've kind of taken parts of the best part of it and superseded it with a new operating system that has far more finite, you know, rule or more of them, but also a more fair and reasonable. No one's saying it's perfect, but is it better than what was in a purely religious space? Um, you know, the average person, I think, would say yes. And that's why I think you're seeing more and more people moving into these sort of liberal democracies. Uh, and so you can see, ah, okay, the ideas behind this, that we want to collaborate together, that we can see different ways, that we want fairness, that we want to lower violence and all this other stuff, that was better under religion than no religion. But now there's kind of like a new system. And how do you have all these this things work? You know, oh, you have an election and you have a president <laughs> or something. Um, and so this is slowly being updated again. And so it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Well, just quickly, what you're um, alluding to is basically um, the age of enlightenment, you know, around 200 mm. years ago. And that was at the time when Nietzsche, uh, when Nietzsche wrote, um, God is dead. Mm. And he wasn't writing it in like this, um, you know, triumphant kind of death, the death of religion phase, but he was writing it to express that we're coming through a phase now where religion is no longer the primordial way of explaining life and reality and everything um, within existence. Uh, and we're moving towards this more scientific-based notion of rationality. But the, the challenge there is that what do we hold ourselves to to give ourselves certainty? Uh, and if we couldn't hold ourselves to religious dogma, something would have to take its place. Uh, and so that was also why he was able to predict things like um, the, the Great Wars of the 20th century, because that opens the door to things like fascism, Marxism, and other kinds of um, you know top-heavy top types of control. But that's going to be for another conversation, because I think we're about to run out of time. So maybe we should go straight to summary. I just say that I think you're almost par parroting word for word some of the things which Jordan Peterson says, and I don't think that they're a fair reflection it's not like there weren't wars in the 1800s there was a hundred year war you know it's not like there weren't sort of these other things so yeah, that's not the point i'm making though. yeah so but I, I don't think that because religion went away therefore we had world war one like to me that is an incredibly long and in my opinion unreasonable bow to to fight i think humans have been getting better at living with each other you look at what the, the stats from stephen pinker etc we had worse you know weapons so you have machine guns and tanks and you know, bombs so you could kill more people Right, but mm -hmm. I don't think that religion going back then meant that we were going to have world wars. We were always having wars, and no, that, but that I think we're getting more peaceful, living with each other. Um, and so, to me, 
Um, yeah, I don't. I think I don't even know if there is a void of. So there was moral absolutism. This is what the purpose of life is. This is what you do, um, yeah. and that you then had to make up some of your own stuff. So you were able to hopefully choose some of your own things. But that doesn't mean yeah. a natural, you know, anarchy that occurs in this void. I don't think there was a yeah. void. I think that the, that actually it was a net net improvement. Some parts worse, right. some parts better, but all else equal better. All right. I just want to quickly respond to this. Like, firstly, I'm not parroting Jordan Peterson. I'm parroting Nietzsche. Uh, and secondly, it's not so much saying that when religion goes away, um, there's going to be more wars. It's, it doesn't lend to um, our proclivity for having violence based on one value system or another. It was basically saying that we held ourselves to religious dogma as a value system. But if that goes away, then we have, well, Nietzsche's contention was that something had to fill that void. And so that was the only point that was being made, not to suggest that because religion goes away, we suddenly have more fights and more deaths or anything like that. I agree with that. Something had to fill the void, which I think was a better outcome than what was in religion. <laughs> um, and that, you know, so to me anyways. Um, okay, look, summary. I think we said we'd talking about the same point for quite a while. <laughs> um, there is biological programs in your source code. And if you're not aware of them, they are going to be running and you think that you are making your decisions, but you're not. Some of this is your source code. There's also societal programming. There was not, a, a, you know, religion was not really a pluralistic outcome. And there was a thing. It was either you'd believe this system or that system. If you don't believe any of them, then you're on your own. And that's not a, a tenable place to be. And I think we are at a place where the society can support, and I think the best ones do, promote pluralism. Um in, in you know most areas, not all areas, but most areas, and I think this is wonderful. Um, you know, I hope that I can learn about myself and that life is a journey. Um, I don't ever expect to sort of have it figured out, but that's the beauty. Um, hmm. And so for me, I believe each year can be better than the next, and a huge part of that is because I get to have a big part of determining what my next year should be. Whereas in the past, I didn't so much. I was running their stories. Hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, in lead up to Today's discussion, there were two major points that uh, I guess that we were exploring. The first one is, as you mentioned, Duncan, that there are two kinds of programming within our mind. There's the more uh, instinctive, primordial uh, mind, and then there's the higher light mind, which uh, is made up of things like empathy, reason, and imagination. Then there's this concept of emergence, whereby we as humans are very complex beings. We can operate on the individual level, but we can also operate on the group and larger society levels as well. The way in which we glue these things together in terms of how we operate at these different levels are the stories that we tell ourselves and that we assign value to. And so, as, um, as we pointed out in this discussion today, it's not so much about tearing these stories down, but by simply bringing our awareness to them and what purpose they are meant to serve can we suddenly create for ourselves this ability to create a better life? And I think there are definitely stories that have had quite a lot of success in the last um, few thousand years that don't necessarily serve us anymore, but they're still playing a very large role in society. And that could arguably be largely due to the fact that we're not consciously aware of how they are driving our behavior. So I think to your point, if we can... Um, put a lot more emphasis towards calling awareness to these stories and why we value what we value, then this will put us on a better pathway forward to being able to not simply uh, abandon, but 
just question and where it doesn't make sense to upgrade and to better ourselves for it. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks, James. I will speak to you soon. All right, Duncan. Speak to you later.